This is Couch and Coffee Table. I'm Michael Perry. Today, we're continuing on with our second part of the Star Trek stories from Power Records. Our first one up is called A Mirror for Fertility. Hope you like it. Captain's Log, Stardate 5470. The Enterprise is on routine patrol on the outer fringes of Federation territory, facing the intergalactic gulf. We are preparing to terminate the patrol. Nothing unusual has been encountered. Log concluded. Captain? What is it, Mr. Sulu? I'm picking up all kinds of powerful radiation at extreme detector range. What kind of radiations, Lieutenant? I don't know, sir. Some of it's identifiable, and the rest resembles nothing I've ever seen before in my readouts. Check them yourself. Lieutenant Sulu is quite correct, Captain. The concentration of violent energies is extraordinarily intense. It resembles no natural phenomenon. Heading, Mr. Sulu? 308, 6 degrees, 000. zero, zero. Range? Range, Mr. Sulu. Closing, Captain, but the disturbances are so violent, I can't say for certain. Two centers, possibly more, are involved. Very well. Change course to intercept. Lieutenant Uhura, sound yellow alert. Aye, Captain. <laughs> Bridge to engineering. Engineering, Scott here, Captain. Scotty, we're heading for a violent energy disturbance of as yet unidentified origins. We may have to do some jumping about. Stand by. Ready back here, sir. Good. Bridge out. Range is still considerable, sir. Full power on the long-range sensors, Mr. Sulu. Wide screen if possible. Working on it, sir. We're getting something. What the? Most remarkable. What is it? I've never seen a ship like that before. Or of that size. What have you got, Mr. Spock? There are two ships, Captain. They are apparently engaged in combat with one another, employing numerous weapons I cannot begin to describe. The forces involved? Each ship is putting out more destructive energy than a hundred ships the class of the Enterprise. Yet both ships, while badly scarred, appeared to be intact. Each is at least 60 times our mass. Captain? Yes, Uhura. Sir, both ships are broadcasting on several frequencies. I can't decipher what they're saying. The universal translator doesn't recognize either language. The words are apparently directed at each other. Put it on the speakers, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. Lower the volume. Keep it on the speakers, Lieutenant. Mr. Spock, how are you coming with identification? Nothing in records yet, Captain. Still processing. Intruder, identify thyself. Laura, give me a reply frequency. Ready, Captain. This is Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Who are you? Where do you come from? What dost thou represent? The United Federation of Planets and its allied peoples. I repeat, who are you? I am the Red Worm. 333rd Super Dreadnought of my class, built by the Unified Dray peoples. There is nothing in my computer banks of a United Federation. Therefore, I must assume you are unneutral. For God's sake, Jim, confirm that we are neutral. It has been assumed, Doctor. 
Didn't you hear? Yes, but I don't want that thing to forget it. That's the biggest warship I ever saw. Except for the one it's fighting, of course. What, Sheriff? What, Sheriff? Identify yourself immediately! Laura, did we just do that? This is a different frequency, Captain. The call is coming from the other ship. This is James Kirk, commanding the USS Enterprise, United Federation of Planets. We are... K-neutral. Impossible! I, renderer of the Next Empire, have declared that all who are not aligned with me are friends of the unmentionable Dray peoples! Sorry, but we really are neutral. We have nothing to do with either the Dray peoples, as you call them, or the Next Empire. Spock, what have you got on those two stellar civilizations? I've never heard of either of them. Working on it, Captain. You must listen to me, or if you I call on you to surrender your... Signals have faded out, Captain. They appear to have forgotten us already. They're fully occupied trying to destroy each other. And I have information on both groups. What is it, Spock? Where are they? They are no longer anywhere, Captain. According to mythological records, both races have been extinct in our galaxy for over 150,000 years. And know thou that I shall fight for another 150,000, or 150 million, until the last remaining vestige of the blasphemous Naks are eliminated from existence. Where are your officers? Who am I speaking to? Which member of the crew? Crew? Officers? We of the Naks carry on for our builders and masters! No less we of the Dray, infidel. What do you think of that, Mr. Spock? I think there can be no doubt, Captain, as there is nothing in the records to indicate that either race was immortal. We must surmise that the crews of both ships have been dead for at least 150 millennia, and the war has been carried on all this time by the computer minds of these two ships. Incredible! Well put, Doctor. Both ships have apparently survived on their own initiative, continuing to carry out the last orders of their living masters, repairing themselves, modifying their own structure, constantly developing new weapons and new defenses, each hunting for a crucial advantage over its opponent. Yet it seems they are evenly matched. Oh, very interesting, Mr. Spock, but at the moment I'm more concerned about their present course. They keep traveling the direction they are now. They'll enter densely populated Federation space within a few days. They've elected to regard us as neutral, for now. They may not treat other Federation shipping, or Federation worlds, so politely. Uhura, give me dual broadcast frequency for both vessels. Ready, sir. Enterprise to combatants. Enterprise calling combatants. Listen, you two. You can reduce each other to masons if you want. But can't you do it somewhere else? You are headed... A challenge! You would dispute my position? No, no. Forget what I said. Spock, what are we going to do? These two are so involved with each other, they've lost the ability to trust anyone else. But we have to turn them somehow. Maybe if we could discover the reason behind the fighting, we could mediate for them, Jim. Didn't you hear the insults they threw at each other, Bones? After 150,000 years, Doctor, I doubt that either ship recalls what the war was originally fought over. That's usually the case with most wars which last more than a few months. Still, we have to do something. Jim, how about taking sides, joining up to help one ship defeat the other? Too risky, Bones. We know nothing of either the Dray peoples or the Nax Empire. I can't opt for one side blind. Besides, I doubt that the Enterprise would make one bit of difference for either side, considering the kind of energy weapons they're using. I doubt that our phases and photon torpedoes could so much as irritate either vessel. And it could get the Enterprise blown clear to the Magellanic Clouds. Just the Enterprise, maybe. 
But suppose we convince them we can call on several thousand ships the size of the Enterprise. A thought, Doctor. Except that we cannot call on several thousand ships. We cannot even call immediately on three or four. True, Spock. But they don't know that. It's worth a try, Bones. Uhura, sound red alert. <coughs> to the red worm of the Grey Peoples. Unless you change your course, you will soon be set upon by thousands of warships of the United Federation of Peoples and will be destroyed and renderer of the Nax Empire. Unless you break off and disengage from this sector, 10,000 cruisers of the UFP will appear to volatize the last remnant of your empire. Sacrilegious interloper! Enemy of its Imperial Majesty, I have been deceived! Captain, both ships are changing course. Mr. Solo, emergency overdrive, warp 8. That was close, Captain. They both fired at our former position. With their minor batteries, I might add. However, they regard the threat seriously, it seems. Both vessels are currently in pursuit. Zuru? They're not closing, Captain. They're still too busy fighting each other, but we're not pulling away from them either. Good. I don't want to lose them. Yes. Kirk here. Go ahead, Mr. Scott. Captain, how long are we going to run at warp 8? We've got full deflector shields up too. We can't maintain this kind of shielding and this speed for too long. I know, Scotty. Hang together down there a while longer yet. We'll do what we can, Captain. Scott, out. Well, Bones, we got them to change their course. We're headed away from Federation-inhabited worlds now. That still leaves the problem of convincing them to leave us alone. Well, I don't know what to suggest, Jim. I didn't get that far. Great. Mr. Spock? I don't know what to suggest either, Captain. At this point, the crucial issue appears to be whether or not... A trick! I see through you now. There is no such thing as a united federation of planets. It was a low ploy of you, blasphemer, to attempt to fool me into assuming a weaker tactical position. You are quick, quick, evil monster. Did you truly think to trick me, me, with such a feeble lie? This united federation, this tiny fabrication masquerading as an inhabited ship is but a decoy manufactured in your own perverted factories. You will pay for that. I shall extinguish your noisomeness, Imperial Bionis. They're slowing, Captain. We're pulling clear of them. Of course, Mr. Solo. Unchanged. They're still headed full speed away from Federation space. Well, what do you think of that? Did you hear, Jim? They've decided that the Enterprise is a trick. The Red Worm thinks we're a trick of the Renderer, and the Renderer believes we're a decoy cooked up by the Red Worm. Each computer has been battling the other for so long they can no longer trust anything. It is so in all extended wars. Truth is the first casualty, and the last wound to heal. Mr. Sulu, set in a course for Starbase 14. Aye, sir. Detectors report both ships still heading out toward the Galactic Rim. And according to sensors, still fighting with each other as heavily as ever. It is sad, Captain. All that knowledge, all that power, devoted to continuing a war whose cause has long since been forgotten. What a waste. Solo, reduce speed to walk back to five. There's one thing that bothers me, though, Captain. What's that, Lieutenant? What happens if one ship, either the Red Worm or the Renderer, finally does win? Won't it start hunting for someone else to fight? We threatened them both in the name of the Federation. Won't the winner come looking for us? I wouldn't worry, Lieutenant Uhura. Both vessels have been in a state of constant warfare for 150,000 of our years without either side gaining a lethal advantage. I think it's safe to say that they will continue to remain evenly matched for another 150,000 years. 
Let's hope so, Mr. Spock. Let's hope so. A lot of the Star Trek stories that we've been running, both in the last episode of Couch and Coffee Table and in this one and on our episode on Friday, I've had some personal favorites. Uh, our second story here is one of those personal favorites. It's called The Time Stealer. Hope you like it. Log, Stardate 6134.6. The mysterious time slowdown we're experiencing has affected not only every crew member on board, but all the Enterprise's instruments and computer banks. It's as if time itself were winding down, and us with it. Sensor readings confirm my hypothesis, Captain. The slowdown phenomena did not initiate until we came within three light years of that peculiar high-density energy field directly ahead. Shut down all warp engines, Mr. Sulu. I want zero acceleration. Stand by on impulse power. Shutting down engines now, Captain. Spock. Fascinating. The time slowdown seems to have leveled itself the moment we stopped approaching the energy field. For the moment, at least, things are getting no slower. That's all I wanted to know. Mr. Chekhov, bring us around to 134.8 degrees on full impulse power. I want to put at least 10 light years between us and that energy field. Aye, sir. As soon as we began moving in another direction, the slowdown effect started reversing itself. And in moments, the crew and the instruments aboard the Enterprise were back to normal, just in time to face a problem of a different nature. Alien vessel moving along our starboard at warp three, Captain. Very well, Mr. Sulu. Shift over to warp one and remain on this course. Lieutenant Uhura, open all hailing frequencies. I'm trying, sir. Let's see what our shadow looks like. Activate the screen. Screen on, Captain. What do you make of it, Spock? Curious. Although I'm not familiar with the design of the vessel... I would most certainly say those markings on its hull suggest we're being flanked by a warship. Message from the alien craft coming through now, sir. Attention, enemy unit. This is Conrack speaking. Surrender your vessel at once or face annihilation. You do not have long to decide. End of transmission, sir. 
What was that you were saying about a warship, Spock? Perhaps this other ship believes we are responsible for the time slowdown. Uh, that would certainly explain their hostility. They certainly don't feel like explaining it. Damage report. One of our shields is buckling. Moderate casualties in decks 35 to 38. Warp engines holding steady. Arm photon torpedoes, Mr. Chekhov. Photon torpedoes armed and ready, sir. Very well. Bring us about to 25.5 degrees, Mr. Sulu, and we'll be in position to... A moment, Captain. Something strange on my sensors. Report, Spock. Although the dimensions of their warship are even larger than the Enterprise, sensors indicate only two beings aboard. Two? Is that possible? Possible or not, it is a fact, Captain. I would suggest it might be wiser to... I'm way ahead of you, Spock. Transporter room. Scotty, are you still there? Aye, Captain. I just finished repairing her. Fine. Scotty, I want you to lock on to two life forms aboard that alien ship. Spock is feeding the coordinates to you now. Aye, Captain. The figures are coming over loud and clear. I'm activating the transporter now. Be careful, Scotty. Spock and I are on our way. A moment later, two shimmering figures appeared in the transporter dock. The one who called himself Conrack turned out to be a fearsome-looking barbaric warrior wielding a double-edged battle axe. Alongside him was his consort, a much smaller being whose manner of attire made him look like just what he was, a sorcerer. But by the time Spock and I reached the transporter room, Conrack had already destroyed half of it. Scotty was slumped in a corner, his body bruised and battered, and it quickly became apparent Conrack had me marked for the same treatment. Kempton, look out! Using all the advanced fighting techniques at my command, the best I could do was just stay alive. Conrack's strength was frightening. If any one of his blows connected at its full force, I was done for. But Spock had observed what I was far too busy to notice. All during the fight, Conrack's consort stood absolutely still, his hands rubbing his temples methodically, almost as if he were casting a spell. Acting on pure logic, Spock made an assumption, and he was right. Suddenly, the course of the battle changed. Conrack's unbelievable strength was quickly reduced to the level of a normal man. Now I had the advantage and the superior fighting skills. You've done the impossible. You have beaten me, Captain Kirk. Not so impossible, actually. I simply applied a Vulcan nerve pinch to your consort and caused him to pass out. Spock, I suppose I should say thank you, but I don't understand. Everything didn't become clear until we gathered in sickbay a few minutes later, and Dr. McCoy finished examining our pair of invaders. You want to repeat what you just said, Bones? It was very simple, Jim. The little fella... The name is Clee. Sorry, friend. Clee here is an honest-to-goodness sorcerer, to put it bluntly. The peculiar power running through his body defies all analysis. For lack of a better word, I'd have to call the end product of these collective energies inside him magic. Magic? I conjectured something of that nature during your fight with Conrack, Captain. It seems Klee was casting a magic spell to give Conrack an incredible degree of strength. Up until now, Conrack had remained somber and silent, but that was before a report from the bridge came over the intercom. Sulu here, Captain. You told me to report any change in the status of the time slowdown area. Yes, Sulu. Well, sir, it's moved. A full 3,000 kilometers since our first sighting of it. Fascinating. Yes, it moves. It has its own orbit. Conrack, tell us what you know about this thing. Our people call it the Gola. And its far-flung orbit through this part of the galaxy brings it in range of our planet at regular intervals. 
A more terrible fate for any world I could not imagine. I don't get it. Just what does this Gola do? Think about it, Doctor. You saw what the time slowdown did to us in just a brief interval. Now imagine an entire planet caught in its stagnating influence for centuries at a time. Now I see. Scientific progress, cultural advances, even your people's thinking processes. It would all slow down to a crawl. Correct, Captain. Klee tells me our civilization is the same age as yours. Yet while your people explore the galaxy in starships, mine are still dressed as barbarians. But your warship... Conceived and powered by sorcery, McCoy. <laughs> Not science. If it weren't for Klee's wizardry, we could never have attempted this mission. You came to destroy the Gola. By any means, we could. Even if it meant sacrificing ourselves. I wrongly made the assumption your vessel was controlling the Gola. And for the attack, I am truly sorry. Captain's log supplemental. Conrack and Klee were sincere. Their entire race was counting on them to wipe out the menace that had held their culture locked in a standstill for centuries. And now they had the help of a starship. Phasers armed and ready, Chekhov? Armed and ready, sir. Let's hope they do more good against the Gola than the photon torpedoes just did. Fire! Three direct hits, but sensors show absolutely no effect. Your weapons are formidable, Kirk, but the Gola seems to know no weakness. Incredible. Conjecture, Spock? I may just be an old country doctor myself, but I'd say the Gola was warping time all around him, making our phasers and photons detonate either in the past or future instead of the here and now. I'm impressed, Doctor. For a mind of your caliber, that is an amazingly accurate assessment. Spock, you can take your Vulcan mind Gentlemen, and... I suggest we concentrate on the disturbance at hand. Not merely a disturbance, Captain. It is now an enemy. Spock, what are you saying? The Gola is now coming directly toward us. We attacked, and now it's retaliating. That, I maintain, is an irrefutable indication of intelligence. The Gola is a living entity. Well, I'll be... As usual, Spock's logic was faultless and absolutely correct. But this revelation changed our situation dramatically. We were now up against a foe with some sort of mind. Could that fact work for us or against us? We just didn't know. But Spock and Klee were up to something, finally coming out of a huddle at the far end of the bridge. Captain, Klee and I have conceived a possible means of combating this creature. Through its mind, Captain Kirk. Spock says he can electronically transmit mental energy into space through your sensors. But even if that's true, Spock, how could any of our minds possibly be a match for anything so vast and limitless? A point well taken, Doctor. But a single mind is not the ammunition we're speaking of. Spock thinks our one chance is to attack the Gola not with an individual, but a whole culture. Explain, Spock. A composite burst of mental energy, Captain, composed of all the minds of every member of Klee's race down through the ages. The melding of millions of minds into one concentrated channel. Spock, you're space happy if you believe that's even conceivable, let alone possible. On the contrary, Doctor. It may be impossible in terms of science, but we're not talking about using science here. Magic. Exactly, Captain. I've already shown Klee how to use our computer banks as a storehouse for the millions of mental images he will be conjuring up. I suggest we back away from my consort now and give him room. Conrack was accustomed to seeing Klee's wizardry, but we were not. 
As his magic drew upon the mind streams of millions of his ancestors, the rest of us stood back in awe. It's fantastic, Spock. I would never have thought such a thing possible. Just how old is your culture, Conrack? How much further does Klee's magic have to reach? The exact date of our origin is unknown. We do know our oldest ancestors came from a far-off planet many eons ago. A planet called Earth. All of us share the same look of amazement. Earth, he said. Could Conrack and Klee be from our very own planet? Before we could explore the topic further, however... The Gola is still advancing and closing fast, sir. Klee! He's ready, Captain. The counterattack will begin now. Klee's hands were gripped around the terminals of the sensor panel. His entire body was surrounded by a shimmering aura as he transmitted an incalculable energy charge through space composed of millions of separate mental bursts, the sum total force of Klee's entire culture down through the ages. Report, Sulu. The Gola's charge is slowing, but it isn't stopping him, sir. He's still coming. In heaven's name, it's not enough. It's just not enough. I am afraid our race was not old enough, Captain. Our culture's history has not amassed enough mind power to overcome the Gola's sheer mental strength. Spock! What the blazes is he doing? He's grabbing the terminals of the center panel. He is glowing with the same shimmering aura that enveloped Klee. Oh, my God. I understand. We all did. Spock was picking up where Klee left off, using what was left of the magic spell to force-feed his culture into the senses. I admire your first officer's courage, Kirk, but how can he hope to succeed where my consort failed? The Vulcan race is one of the oldest in the galaxy, Conrack. Odds are it's far older than your race or ours. That's right, now that I think of it. Vulcan history goes back so far, Spock will have billions of more mind streams to draw from. Look, I think Spock's reached his limit. He must stop. Too much mental energy will kill him. Then it happened. All at once, Spock released the sum total of Vulcan mental energy amassed through millions of years, transmitted through our sensors in one massive charge. And although the invisible charge did not show up on our screens, the result did. Look! Spock's done it! The Gola is backing away! It's trying to flee, but it's slowing down! I believe that last energy burst paralyzed it. That is correct, Conrad. Spock! You're all right? Somewhat exhausted, but feeling satisfactory, Captain. And you, Clee? I'm fine! Now that I know we've finally beaten the scourge of our race! Now that we've got the Gola where we want it, what do we do with the blasted thing? I am addressing that problem at this very moment, Doctor. Explain, Spock. In transmitting that mental burst to the Gola, I came in contact with its mental center, Captain. What we would call its mind. I have just completed a circuit that will allow all of us to hear what it is thinking at this moment. Incredible. I never could have guessed such a thing. Spock. That sounds like the crying of a baby. Very astute, Doctor. Gentlemen, Gola is a mere infant. Not a baby in the human sense of the word, but a baby nevertheless. It was spawned in the heart of a star sun millions of light years away, and its far-reaching orbit has really been a methodical search for its parent. The sun that spawned it. Yes, Conrack. The fearsome menace your people dreaded is merely a child lost in the stars. Our job now is to locate its home. Captain's log, stardate 6453.2.
After using a long-range tractor beam to pull Gola behind us for several days, we finally released it moments ago. As we orbited the star sun, Spock's calculations had pinpointed as the parent. All of us watched the screen in eager anticipation. Instruments show that Gola is now stationary in the core of the star sun, Captain. Thank you, Mr. Sulu. I think it's safe to say the baby is home. Well, Spock, I've got to hand it to you. As a galactic babysitter, you're not half bad. See you all later. Spock, about Conrack and Klee, something bothers me. Captain, we return them to their home planet. With Gola gone, they'll begin to progress normally now. I don't see a problem. That part about them coming from a planet called Earth. I can't help wondering if it was our Earth. But there are no historical records of an ancient civilization vanishing from Earth that long ago. Curious. When I took over from Klee at the Sensors, I picked up brief mental images of his very first ancestors. They were evacuating a sinking continent in spaceships. Spock! Tell me, Captain, isn't there an old Earth legend about a civilization that sank beneath the sea called Atlantis? Atlantis? Mr. Spock, would you be surprised if you just solved one of the greatest mysteries on Earth of all time? Surprised? Hardly, Captain. Somewhat pleased, perhaps. Spark, never mind. A lot of the original Star Trek episodes sometimes put the members of the Enterprise crew in a very unusual situation here and there. Uh, that holds true with Next Gen as well as the original series. This is one of those to where I felt it was an unusual premise. It's almost an, it got an out west kind of feel to it. Our third story is called The Logistics of Stampede. Stardate 5466.9. The Enterprise is in orbit around the outpost colony world of Rival 2 on orders from the Federation Agricultural Division to try and find a solution to the destructive plague of Dranzes, which wipes out 70 to 90% of the grain crop every sixth year. A landing party of Dr. McCoy, First Officer Spock, and myself has beamed down to the Ribolian surface to survey the problem firsthand. Mr. Newt Henderson of the Ribolian Settlers League has taken us in hand. Mr. Henderson, you realize that none of us has ever seen a Dranzer. So, if you knew Dranzers, Captain Kirk, you wouldn't wonder why we're making this little trip by air instead of on land. I confess that I am surprised at the lack of information on such a dangerous creature, Mr. Henderson. Starfleet records are of little help. Let's see if I can fill you in then, Mr. Spock, wasn't it? A dranzer looks like a cross between a pig and a buffalo. They have long black hair, flat quadruple horns, an ugly disposition, 
and are about half the size of an earthly elephant. So it's their size which makes them a threat to them. Yeah, and the fact that they breed like rabbits. When this world was first settled 12 years ago, they weren't considered a danger. They stayed in the hilly grasslands on the western part of this continent. We grow our grain in the central and eastern plains regions. Everything was fine until six years ago. We noticed then that the Dranzers were so thick they nearly walked on each other. But we had no reason to suspect they would... Come down onto the plains and trample your fields. Just so. We don't know why. Too many Dranzers, too little food maybe, but they panicked. Came down out of the hills like a black avalanche and ruined the whole crop for that year. Nearly ruined the colony. But we hung on, replanted, and have done well since then. Except... It's six more years and the Dranza population is up again. And you expect another continent-wide stampede. Yeah. Ah, there they are. Now, you'll see what I mean. I'll cut our engine and we'll glide in over them. Otherwise, the noise is liable to start the stampede. Like locusts. There must be thousands of them. Millions, Captain. I'm going to have to pull us out of here, gentlemen. Our shadow is making them nervous. Never mind. I think we've seen enough to give us some idea of the size of your problem, Mr. Hayes. What do you suggest we do? We have been petitioning Starfleet for help for years. What about simply reducing the herds through selective pruning? No. We tried that three years ago when the herds first began to grow too big again. For one thing, it started a premature stampede which ruined several thousand square kilometers of maturing foothill cropland. As you might guess, the farmers in that area won't permit the repetition of that disaster. But there's another more important reason. Which is? There's a high grass which germinates in the hills. It would take over the plains except that the Dranzer herds keep it cut back. If we were to kill off the Dranzers, our agriculture experts tell us that in a decade, the grass would take over every meter of arable land on the continent. We have to find some way of controlling the Dranzers without letting the grass get out of control. But if we leave the natural cycle alone, the racial stampede will occur within a half year, and we'll lose another entire year's crop. Mr. Spock, reactions? At first glance, the problem would appear insoluble, Captain. That's not what we pay taxes to hear, Mr. Spock. I fear that government is rarely run according to scientific principles, Mr. Anderson. But we will, we must do something. I hope so, Mr. Spock, Captain Kirk. I sincerely hope so. You said the full stampede was expected within six months. It could happen tomorrow, too. Or next week, according to the biostatisticians, the herds are already at critical size. That does not give us much time to theorize prospective solutions. That's not our fault. We have been trying to get some action out of Starfleet for years. Starfleet has many concerns, sir. We'll do the best we can for you. Captain Kirk, we've got several hundred thousand kilometers of ripe food grains just about ready for harvesting, and they could be trampled into compost any day now. If it is, you'd better believe your superiors are going to hear of it. Old-fashioned doorways, they still have here. And if Henderson is typical of the rebellion settlers, the people are pretty old-fashioned themselves. Such folk don't take catastrophe quietly. He's right. They can make trouble for us with headquarters. Well, what do they expect from us, Bones? We're not responsible for the ecological setup on this world. The Dranza stampede never bothered anyone until the colony here expanded to bring two-thirds of this continent under intensive cultivation. 
True, Captain. Bear in mind that the Drenzers do not vote. I have, however, thought of a possible solution, which will only bend and not tear the natural fabric of this planet. Well? It involves a considerable risk on the part of those involved, Captain. Wait a minute, Spock. If this is something you regard as a considerable risk, I'm not sure I want any part of it. I'm afraid that your knowledge of organic chemistry is required, Doctor. But first, we must capture a large Drenzer, the largest Drenzer we can. Capture one? What on Rival 4? The explanation derives logically, Doctor. You wanted to see me, Captain Kirk? Yes, Henderson. Spock and Dr. McCoy beamed up to the Enterprise and have been working around the clock on your problem. They think they've come up with a solution. First, we need a number of those high-speed ground vehicles your people use. Wait a minute now. We asked for Federation aid. Why should we have to supply... You want us to stop this stampede or not? All right. If that's what you need, you'll have them. But by heaven, those ground cars are specially built for high-speed travel on Rebellion terrain. If you get them banged up... Take it easy, Henderson. We'll take care of your precious vehicles. And now, I'd like to hear this miracle your people have produced. They should be beaming down any minute now. I'll let them tell you about it in person. Here it is, Jim. That's all? That one little tank? It can't hold more than a couple of liters of... of what's in it, anyway? 1.8 liters, to be precise. But that will be sufficient. You mean you're going to stop the stampede of several million transers with this? Not stop, Mr. Henderson. Divert. Divert? Assuming that this little pop bottle of whatever it is can do anything, where do you propose to divert the herds to? And keep them diverted. They've been stampeding, according to the best evidence, in the same paths across the continent for millions of years. All will become clear, sir. Captain, have we the properly equipped vehicles? Standing by, Spock, with local drivers. When I explained what we were going to do, most of our would-be volunteers quietly disappeared. The drivers we have left are brave people. Excellent. Then all that is left is to transfer a portion of the liquid in this container into the equipment on each vehicle. Then... Come in. Just got this from the Delautre family ranch in the northwest quadrant. One of their outposters for scouting up in the hills. Thanks, Ellie. Well, what does it say? We're too late. You're too late. I should have known not to rely on Starfleet again. The stampede's already begun. Then we have no time to waste, gentlemen. Captain, Dr. McCoy, you will each command one set of vehicles. Mr. Henderson, how much time have we before the herd leaders reach the first grain fields? In case we fail, these areas should stand by to evacuate. Wait a minute. You don't propose to try something now. You can't expect to stop several million animals already in full stampede. I said divert. Remember, not stop. Captain, Dr. McCoy, are we ready? I hope you know what you're doing, Spock. If this doesn't work, they're going to have to scrape us off the ground. If it doesn't work, a lot of people here will be ruined, Doctor. And many elsewhere will go hungry. It must work. Besides, the percentages are in our favor. They are... Never mind. I don't want to hear. I might want to back out. Of course, everything depends on your accurate synthesis of the necessary liquid. Thanks, Spock. Spock. 
I hope your Mr. Spock knows what he's doing, Captain. He usually does, Anderson. He'd better this time. There's no way out for us, you know. We can't go right or left to escape the herds. If this doesn't work, we've had it. Look back there, out the rear window. See that dust cloud? Looks like a storm coming towards us. In a way, it is. There must be a hundred million animals in full stampede along a 2,000-kilometer-long front. And they average about two tons apiece. Do you know what they'll do to this vehicle and us if they overtake us? There won't be enough left of us to bark. Captain. Air Spock, ready at Station One. Very good, Captain. I am approximately 600 kilometers due north of your position. Dr. McCoy's group is a similar distance north of mine. Can you see the herd? We can see the dust cloud they're raising. Good. On my signal, you will activate the sealed tanks on your vehicles and start along the charted course. Check, Mr. Spock. Dr. McCoy? I heard, Spock. We're all set at this end. Jim? I'm here, Bones. If this idea of Spock fails, I want his corpse court-martialed. Appropriate action will be taken, Bones. How long is he going to wait? Until he's sure the timing is right. Timing! Look behind us again! The dust is beginning to blot out the sun. Pretty soon we'll see the front wall of the herd. Do you know how far and how fast a Dranger can run, Captain? If we run out of fuel or have a mechanical problem or this crazy idea doesn't work, we've no place to run. Relax, Henderson. Spock knows what he's doing. I can make out individual animals now. They'll be honest in another few minutes. Here, you, Commander Spock, what's going on? What are you waiting for? The correct moment, Mr. Henderson. Correct moment? Look, in another couple of minutes, we're all going to be a smear on the landscape. If you don't... Very well. Captain, Dr. McCoy, you may open the valves on your tanks. Thanks, Spock. You can smell it even in here. What's in that canister anyway? Spock discovered that Dranzas have very poor eyesight. The herd leaders produce a musky odor which the others follow. He had Dr. McCoy mix up a batch of synthetic Dranzer muscle, only concentrated several hundred thousand times. To the animals leading the herd, we must smell like the most authoritative Dranzer that ever lived. The same smell is being released by Mr. Spock's and Dr. McCoy's group of vehicles along the whole front of the herd. You have our course plotted? Yes, yes. Then let's get moving. With pleasure. It's working, Spock. They're turning slightly. Yes, they're following us. Here also, Captain. And up here. Good work, Spock. We are not secure yet, gentlemen. Captain, we can't keep this up forever. We've been running at this speed for nearly a whole day. Even with the extra fuel tanks I had installed, we can't continue at this speed much longer. We've covered so much territory already in this dust that... Hey, what's that up ahead? Leave that wheel alone. What are you doing? Don't you see? We're headed right into them again. They're behind us, too. We're trapped. Don't you see? We're trapped. Get a hold of yourself, Henderson. That's not another herd. That's the back end of the herd following us. Back in? Following us? Captain, all vehicles stand by to execute final maneuver. Ready, Spock. Ready. I don't understand, Captain. Look behind us now. It's the herd, but they're passing behind us. They're not following anymore. That's right, as Spock knew we couldn't kill the Dranzas off, so the stampede had to take place. But nothing said it had to follow the same old paths. Check our course. See, we've led the herds in a full circle. Our scent tanks are empty, and now the animals in the front of the herd are following the scent of those at the back of the same herd. They should keep running in a circle like a dog chasing its own tail until they run themselves out. 
The threat to your crops is over. And next year, the normal number of surviving grasses will keep the high grass from going down into the plains. Control group three to group two. Group three calling group two. Group two here. Is that you, Landowner Henderson? Mr. Spock, please accept my personal apology, along with the thanks of every farmer on Ribol 2. You've solved our problem, now and for the future. You're welcome, Mr. Henderson, but there is a penalty. Penalty? One cannot alter nature without reaping consequences. The millions of dead transers which used to scatter across the great plains of this continent will not lie in your fields this year. Their bodies used to fertilize the ground. Now, you must move the corpses to your fields or import artificial fertilizers if you expect your fields to keep producing good grain in the future. But, Mr. Spock, that means moving a hundred million transer bodies? A considerable task. Group two out. Two hundred million tons? Captain, do you think that Starfleet... I'm sorry. Starfleet has saved your crops for you. But even Starfleet can only do so much. You're going to have to learn to help yourselves a little, too. Now, I suggest you get in touch with the rest of your neighbors and fellow farmers. The sooner you begin moving those bodies behind us, the better. Because if all those bodies begin to decompose in one place, and if the wind changes, you're going to have a very good grain crop. But an awfully smelly year. Our final story for today is called To Starve a Fleaver, and it is a personal favorite. It put me in mind of the Star Trek original series episode, The Naked Time. I hope you like it. You're listening to Couch and Coffee Table. Captain's Log, Stardate 5468.2. A request has been received at Starfleet headquarters from a recently contacted civilization, the system of Marpaplu, for accreditation as an associate member of the United Federation of Planets. The Enterprise has been ordered to Marpaplu to consider final processing of the Marpapluan application. What are the Marpapluans like, Captain? This will be the first time we've ever met one in person, Mr. Scott. But from the records I've reviewed, they're supposed to be remarkably good-natured and friendly. Stand by to energize. Stand in by, Captain. Message from the surface, sir. Their representative is ready to beam up. Thank you, Lieutenant. Energize, Mr. Scott. Energizing, Captain. There's someone in there. Can't make them out yet. Oh, there he is. Greetings, gentle beings. Humanoid, all right, Captain, but they're not very big. I got a ten-year-old cousin about that size. Shh, Mr. Scott. They may be sensitive about their size. How do you do, uh... Your consulship will do, sir. You must be Captain James Kirk. A thousand, ten thousand pleasant, happy thoughts to you. I am Council Knights Hausnick 
of the Marpapluan World's Government. It's my extreme good fortune and pleasure to greet you on behalf of my people to present our application for associate membership in your esteemed organization. Well, what do you think, Spock? They are evidently as friendly as their communications indicated, Doctor. I'd say the Marpapaloons will be a good addition to the Federation. I extend the good wishes and greetings of my government to all the citizens of Marpaplu and welcome you, Council Hausnick, aboard the Enterprise. Would you like to see what your world looks like on a Federation cruiser scanner? Oh, yes, yes, of course I would. This way, then. Mr. Spock, Dr. McCoy, if you'll accompany us to the bridge. Wonderful. This is wonderful. This is where your ship is controlled from, then. Correct, your council ship. Over there, you see engineering. That is the helm, Lieutenant Sulu, currently on station. How do you do today, sir? Just fine, thank you. And back here is communications, Lieutenant Uhura in charge. A great pleasure, madam. That is a female of your species, Captain? Yes. I am charmed beyond words, Uhura-shi. Me too. And this here must be the captain's position. Correct again. These switches and controls here on the arms of this chair, what are they for? Well, if you activate these here... <laughs> uh, if you press this one... <laughs> Jim, are you all right? I'm fine, Bones. What makes you think anything is... <laughs> wrong? Captain, despite Council Hausneck's good nature, I fail to see the reason for such unwarranted hysteria on your part. It is not in keeping with diplomatic traditions of first contact. Mr. Spock, are you accusing me of improper conduct at a serious time in... <laughs> I see what you mean, Spock. Perhaps something is wrong. Wrong? Wrong? What could be wrong? Uh, nothing, your counselship. I assure you, everything is... <laughs> Perfectly all right. Isn't it, Bones? I don't know. What are you scratching at, Jim? Scratching, Bones? Yes, you've been scratching at yourself. At your side, under your arms, around your waist, ever since we entered the bridge. Aren't you aware of it? Well, I guess I... <laughs> there! You did it again! It's almost as if you... <laughs> as if I was, Lawrence. As if you... <laughs> you too, Doctor? <laughs> Me too what, Spock? Captain, something very peculiar is going on. I think... Just a minute, Mr. Spock. <laughs> Bridge Captain speaking. Engineer and Scott here. <laughs> go ahead, Scotty. Is something funny, Captain? <laughs> Please, Scotty, go ahead and report. Standard engineer and status update, sir. On warp engine one, minor repairs completed. <laughs> what was that, Mr. Scott? It's only... <laughs> Mr. Scott, you may deliver your report when you regain control of yourself. Until then... But, Captain, <laughs> Bridge, out. I must apologize for that, Council Hausnick. Apologize? What is there to apologize for, Captain? The standard of efficiency on a Federation cruiser is normally... Normally... <laughs> <laughs> no. Definitely something peculiar here. Captain, should I? <laughs> what so? How <laughs> funny, Lieutenant. I, I don't know, Captain. <laughs> what are you scratching at? Captain, something is very wrong. <laughs> I can see that, Mr. Spock. Sulu, Uhura, everyone on the bridge is laughing themselves silly, and I can't see what's funny about it. <laughs> However, I do have this peculiar crawly feeling. 
crawly feeling, Captain? I have it too. Council Hausneck, I wonder if you would accompany me to sick bay for uh, some tests. I don't mean to offend you, but... Bones, the diplomatic situation we have here. <laughs> Captain, <laughs> reports are coming in from all over the ship, every deck and section. <laughs> Outbreaks of uncontrolled laughter accompanied by persistent itch-like tickling all over the body. <laughs> Several sections already report that their operating efficiency has been affected by the mounting hysteria. <laughs> Thank you, Lieutenant. Keep monitoring the situation and report if things become more serious. Aye, sir. See, Jim, there's no avoiding it. No need to be concerned, Captain Kirk. I'll be happy to go along with Dr. McCoy. Is there something the matter? <laughs> there is, but it may have nothing to do with you, your councilship. But you greeted Captain Kirk first, sir. Let's go down and check it out. Found something, Doctor? I think so, Spock. Come over and have a look through the microscope, Captain. It looks like hundreds of tiny bugs, Bones. That's exactly what they are, Jim. They exhibit many characteristics of fleas, but they're much smaller and tougher. I've tried everything in our anti-bug arsenal. Our most potent poisons don't even make them sleepy. Now, the first sample was taken, with his kind permission, from Council Hausnick's skin. This one's from my own epidermis. Bugs? Let me see. Why, they're only Meejis. Meejis? Naturally. Everyone has his own quota of Meejis. Don't they? Don't you? I am sorry to have to inform you, Consul Hausnick, that Meejis appear to be unique to Marpaplu. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. We've always had Meejis. So we've always assumed everyone had Meejis. Well, everyone on board has them now. And while I'm sure you'll get along fine with your Meejis, your councilship, we have no desire to share them with your people. This laughter is physically dangerous. Some of us are already so weak we're in danger of laughing ourselves to death. Just because Meejis seem to tickle rather than bite, that makes them no less dangerous to us. Oh, sorry, 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 I am, had we known. Yes, but you didn't. It's too late now. The entire ship has been affected. Don't your Meejis ever trouble you? I don't see you scratching them. Scratch? But why? Our Meejis never move about nervously on us. We keep them quite happy. Meejis thrive on happy thoughts. If you will think only happy thinking, they will stop moving about on your bodies and trying to make you happy. So that's it. The Meejis are emotional parasites feeding on the contentment of their hosts. Wonderful. But how can I think happy thoughts when I'm... Getting madder and madder. See, Captain, the angrier you are, the harder the Meejis move, tickle, trying to force you into a happy mood. Even a well-meaning parasite is still a parasite. Consul Hausnick, why not rid yourselves of these Meejis? Why would anyone want to rid themselves of Meejis? Because they're driving us crazy. But the Meejis ensure that our people think only satisfied thoughts. True, this may have held us back in certain areas of our development, but we have no wars, no crime. I'm sorry, your councilship, but I'm afraid it's too late for us to adapt to the Meiji's way of living. For better or worse, we're stuck with our emotions. With exceptions. Yes. Now, if you'll just tell us what to use to get rid of Meiji's. I'm sorry, Captain Kirk, but we discovered long ago that Meiji's are immune to every known type of spray, antibiotic, and poison. That's one reason we've learned to live with him. We've had to. <laughs> uh, 
But of course, we like it now. There are one or two poisons strong enough to kill Meejis. Unfortunately, they also kill the Meejis' host. And when he dies, the Meejis migrate to a new person. Bones, you're sure we've nothing that will kill them? That's as Counselor Hausnick said, Jim. I've got samples of 235 different chemicals for use on parasitic pests. I have to report that there are 235 different chemicals which Meejis are immune to. There are certain things which will work. For example? Spraying them with hydrochloric acid. Uh, I think we'll pass that one up, Bones. And that was the mildest successful treatment I could come up with. But we've got to come up with something. Soon it's going to become impossible to operate the Enterprise properly with everyone rolling on the deck in stitches. I'm sorry, Jim. I've tried everything in the antidote banks, and records offers no hope of finding something effective. Sorrowful. Sorrowful I am. It's not your fault, Counselor. What is it, Scotty? I've had it, Captain. Half of my second shift is strapped in their bunks, shaking themselves apart with amusement. The other shifts aren't much better off. I cannot monitor the engines properly. The ship's general functions are going to pieces. <laughs> Captain, I don't know what to do anymore. It's all so hopeless. I know, Scotty. How do you fight a microscopic joke? I don't know what to do. I'm at my wit's end. Take it easy, Scotty. Everything will be all right in the end. Possibly. Possibly. If we assume it will not. What do you mean, Spock? You will notice that Mr. Scott is neither laughing nor scratching at himself, Dr. McCoy. Don't pray to cheer me up, Mr. Spock. It's good of you, but I tell you, I haven't been this depressed since... Here, Dr. McCoy, what are you doing? Just taking a little skin sample, Mr. Scott. Don't pay any attention to me, you were saying. It's just that I haven't seen such a sorry state of affairs in engineering since I entered the service. People laughing themselves sick over nothing. The mistakes they make in reading simple gauges, it's enough to make a man cry. <laughs> Excuse us a minute, Scotty. Jim, Spock... Take a look at this. Don't stop, Scotty. We're still listening. It looks like the Meejis. But they've stopped moving. They're dead. But how? Why? Scotty? Yes, Captain. Have you exposed yourself to any strong radiation since the counselor came on board? Why, no, sir. Nothing like that. Why do you ask? You haven't worked in an irradiated chamber or handled any radiant materials? No, Captain. Only my usual duties. And they're definitely dead bones. I just don't understand how. Wait a minute, Jim. Council Hausnick... You confirmed that the Meejis were emotional parasites. You said they feed on happy thoughts and pleasant musings. That is correct, McCoy doctor, sir, but... Now, don't you see, Jim, that's it. Mr. Scott's been so depressed and saddened from the beginning of the epidemic that his sadness overwhelmed his Meejis. He starved them to death for lack of laughter. Holmes, I think you're right. You must be right. Captain, I didn't understand... That's okay, Scotty. Just keep on being miserable. Now hear this, all hands. This is the captain speaking. The plague of laughter which has infected the Enterprise is caused by a tiny bug called a Meiji, brought up from the world below us. These invaders can be destroyed. They feed on laughter. Everyone is therefore directed to think only sad, unhappy thoughts. This is an order. Think of something terribly depressing, an illness in your family, a sad incident from your childhood, anything which will make you want to cry. You know, Bones, that was the saddest order I've ever had to give. I realize that, Jim. It makes me want to cry, too. You two, stop it. You're only depressing me further. I do not believe depressing is wholly an accurate description in this case, Doctor. But it is certainly the strangest prescription I have ever heard you give. Jim, I... I don't feel like laughing anymore. I think that did it, Bones. It worked fast. 
Probably the Meejis aren't ready for such concentrated misery. They get only happy thoughts on Mopper Blue. Isn't that so, Council Hausnick? Yes, of course, Captain Kirk. In fact, I don't seem to have the comfortable feeling of my own Meejis about me. Don't worry. I'm sure you'll regain a thriving colony as soon as you beam back home. And no harm done. We can officially conclude the treaty now, if you wish. Indeed I do, Captain. But let us hurry. I feel deserted without Meejis. We'll hurry, but there's one provision that must be added to the treaty. Captain's Log, Supplemental. The Treaty of Friendship has been concluded with the system of Mapablu, and said people have been accepted for official associate membership in the United Federation of Planets. While agreeing to remain under temporary quarantine until safety precautions for preventing the spread of the parasitic Meejis can be developed. End log entry. Well, Bones, I think the Mapapluans have a lot to offer the Federation. Uh, from a distance, of course. I've heard of infectious humor, but I never thought of having to take it literally. Yes, Bones. We'll have to be careful for a while in our dealings with Council Hausnick's people. Mapaplu is just a bit too friendly for comfort at the moment. There's just one thing troubling me, Jim. What's that, Bones? It's Mr. Spock. He didn't manifest any symptoms of Meejis. No laughter, no ticklish scratching. Then he must have been infected as well. Is it so surprising that the superior Vulcan system should prove immune to a disease affecting lower physical orders? But, Mr. Spock, I'm certain I heard you giggle. I beg your pardon, Lieutenant. You must be mistaken. No, I'm not. I distinctly heard you giggle. Spock? Giggling? Come on, Spock. Giggle for us again. Dr. McCoy, I do not, will not, and never have giggled. And now, if Lieutenant Uhura has had her fun, I have important work to attend to. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. We appreciate you stopping by and listening in with us here on the couch. And we hope you'll come back and do it again with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out some of the other episodes we have to offer, as well as new episodes, which are uploaded every Monday and Wednesday. We are listener supported, as we have always been, by you, the listeners. We thank you all for your support and hope you will continue. Friday. We'll see us with a, an unusual day as Friday we are going to be doing the third part of our Power Records uh, Star Trek series. It will be the final one. Uh, a lot more of those episodes. There, There's only going to be a handful, but maybe not even that. But we, we plan on having that on Friday, and we hope that you'll tune in for it. This has been Couch and Coffee Table. Until next time. Be good to yourself.